Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. All right, we're live. Yes, we are. Another another happy hour, another week yeah. down. I don't know about you guys, but our Friday is coming more rapidly than ever before. Is it just me? No, no, I think it's... I uh, thought it was Tuesday. Yeah. It's <laughs> the longest Honestly, I know, I know I'm having a tough week when I'm having a Chardonnay. <laughs> I, I'm drinking coffee today because I had my happy hour last night. It sounds just like so it. you guys know. Kevin, what are you drinking? Uh, so I'm having a beer, uh, just true Canadian boy. Actually, from Guinness. Nova Scotia, I believe. Mike, you want to hit us with a disclaimer? Yeah, yeah. I, I, you're having a Stella down there in Brazil. So we've got a Brazilian with us. We've got a Peruvian and we've got a couple of Canadians. This is oh, going to be right. fun. That's right. It's going to be fun. Sure. And as always, and, and by the way, our uh, our newfie partner might join us, Adam Butler. Um, not He's, he's, a, he's a, a commentator at large at the moment. Um, so if he pops onto the screen, no, nobody gets scared or anything. He'll just fit right in. And as always, we're going to have a wide ranging free uh, conversation about all kinds of neat global macro uh, topics and items and investment stuff. Uh, please don't take any of this as advice. Go get advice from real professionals who know what they're doing. Not a group of guys having a happy hour at three o'clock on a Friday. <laughs> and with that said, I will turn it over Um Richard, did you want to in, in, introduce Kevin a bit? Yeah. Yeah, I, I actually wanted uh, to give him the opportunity to introduce himself for anyone who might not know him. I think there will be a few out there, but uh, Kevin, if you want to do the honors, or sure. do you go by this is the macro tourist? Yeah. So um, my name's Kevin Muir. I've uh, been in the industry for a long time. I started off at RBC Dominion Securities. Uh, I got a job on the institutional equity desk when I was a young kid. I actually hadn't even finished university. And uh, I got a job on the institutional desk. My boss used to joke. He said there was guys that were better at computers and there was guys that were better at trading, but you were the right mix of both. So I was lucky enough to get on to a big bank dealer in the early 90s and uh, when computerized trading was taking off. And very quickly, I kind of became the derivative specialist and eventually was the prop trader and did that for most of the all the way through the 90s until 2000 came along. In 2000, uh, I saw the writing on the wall in terms of the market was about to cr- like roll over and we'd actually had our first child. She was born with a heart defect that was luckily corrected at birth, but it was one of those kind of moments when you decide what's important in life. And uh, I decided that the bank was slowly eating into the fun that I used to have at the old dealer. And so I quit. And uh, I like to joke and say that it was like um, Michael Jordan when he scored the basket and won won it for the Bulls. I I left on our best kind of quarter ever. And uh, and I went off and I decided to – I wasn't sure what I was going to do. So I kind of went home and thought about it. And I decided that I was about to go get a job at a hedge fund. And I thought, well, you know, if I go work for a hedge fund and then a year later I get bored – and quit or want to do something different, everyone's going to remember me as the schmo that left after a year. But if I go trade for myself a year later, I go work for someone, you know, a hedge fund, nobody will remember the year I traded for my own. 
So I started trading on my own with another guy that actually quit DS, uh, RBC Dominion Securities. And so we started trading our own account. And I said, I'll keep going until this, you know, until it doesn't work. And one year turned into two, which turned into five, which turned into 20. And my daughter went off to university. And then I finally decided I better get a real job and do something else. Um, so for the past couple of decades, I've been trading my own account. Along the way, I got... Um, you know, it was, it's kind of isolating trading for yourself. We had an office and, you know, we did have a, a computer programmer. So there's three, and then we had a, a clerical staff. So there's four of us, but it still wasn't the same as the old days at a de- on the desk and all the camaraderie and I missed it. So I started writing and it started originally as a, a journal because everyone says traders should write the journal and, you know, get their thoughts out on paper and so I started writing this journal and people would ask me, well, you know, my buddies would say, what do you think about the market? And I would say, well, you know, here's what I wrote. And so I'd send it to them. And then I decided I actually it was easier to put it on the net and I would put a password on it and just gave it to my friends. And eventually I just took the password off because I got fed up of it, you know, giving it to them. And lo and behold, actually people started reading it. It was the biggest shock to me as well. Um, and so I started, you know, going downtown Toronto and people would say, oh, I, I love your stuff. It's fun and it's good. And so that was where the macro tourist was born. I, I came to the conclusion that this was actually a very kind of great marketing tool because in the past, you know, I was just some guy sitting in a room trading. Now all of a sudden when I'm out there putting things out, I could go and call up a strategist or call up somebody and, that, and, it, and the recognition really helped. And then people would be giving me ideas and going back and forth. And it's been a great, it's been a great experience. So I've really enjoyed it. So that, that is, that is really interesting because it's, um, it, it's something that happened to our CIO, Adam Butler, because he, he was in the same thing, sort of. You're Pardon me? You're a little hot. Oh, sorry. Oh, I'm a little, little hot from here. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll go into sultry, sultry vote. Um, <laughs> So, so he was. Uh, he found it quite cathartic as well to sort of get your thoughts down, start to share it, and that was the the launch of the Gestalt U blog back. You know, I guess going on 12, 12 years ago now. Yeah, yeah. And that's really the, the, again the launch of the business. I, I, I'm yeah. curious though, uh, Kevin. When I've heard other global macro managers um, talk about how there is more pressure when you're trading in the eyes of the world than when you were trading your own account. Have you felt once you started publishing and putting your ideas out there, it, was it harder for you to change your mind because of what you put on paper? Uh, yeah, so there is there is that tendency to get onto a position and then you don't feel like you can go the other way. And there's some very famous guys out there that become known as the dollar bear or the whatever it is, and then they can't go back and forth. I actually don't seem to suffer from that. I, I I say the only thing that I'm really bearish on that I might be overstayed my welcome is is bonds. But otherwise, I've been pretty willing to to jump back and forth. And in fact, I kind of found that writing slowed down my trading. And I it's one of those things where you should like do as I say, not as I do. Because uh, you know, my partner used to laugh, and he said, "If we just put it all in your ideas and took our time and and were patient about it, we'd do much better with the macro tourist portfolio than this hyperactive going back and forth." So, I I, I didn't find that that wasn't something that really bothered me. Interesting. So, Kevin, if you were to sort of describe uh, in broad strokes your framework, you started off as a derivatives guy, and then you went into product trading. How would you maybe? Uh, 
specify the way you think about the world and, and sort of your global macro views? So one of the things that I like to say is, is do as what will be done and don't worry about what should be done. And this is what I find so many people in trading, they sit around and they argue about, you know, what is the right course of action? And I, I say, that's great, but that's not going to make us any money. Let's think about what's actually going to be done. And I think MMT is a perfect example, modern monetary theory. A lot of people, you know, when they first heard about it, they got their backs up. They thought that was terrible and they thought it was a bad policy. So they therefore dismissed it. I went and learned, you know, everything I could about it. And then I realized that even if you don't like this policy, that this is the way the world's headed. So one of the things that I like to do is to make sure I'm, I'm causing it of where the world is headed. And I don't try to let my own personal beliefs affect my trading. And that, that is one of the things that, you know, I really, truly believe. Like if, if all of a sudden tomorrow, like I am a huge bond bear for the long run. But if tomorrow the deficit hawks took over Congress and we got a situation where they were trying to balance budgets, I'd get bullish bonds. Even though I think it's dumb, you know, if I saw the, the policies that were being put in place that were going to cause bonds to rally, I'd go with it. The other thing is that I'm probably more willing to fade stuff than most other people. Uh, I, I found that over the years of watching like the Twitter, you know, all these finance guys, all these hedge fund guys, they get onto a story. They all sound, they think they sound so smart. And it is, it's intoxicating. You hear them, you, you go, oh, that's great. You know, this XYZ manager thinks that the, the Chinese renminbi peg is going to be broken or the Hong Kong peg is going to be broken or something like that. And there's all these like just super sexy sounding trades. And, and I've just found that over the years, these guys have just cost you money over and over and over again. So one of the things that I, I'm willing to do is say, the hedge funds are the new dentists of the world. Like everyone, when I was growing up on the desk, we always used to say you sell when the dentists are buying, meaning that that was the late, you know, the late last bot person buying. The hedge funds are the ones that are pushing it around. And when all the hedge funds are in a trade, you know, that's when you should be taking the other side. So ironically, the, the, the more it's out in the media and the more that that, you know, story gets passed around zero hedge, the more I want to fade it. I think Hugh, Hugh Henry said something very similar in that in, in, in his hedge fund days before he retired, he, he had, you know, he, he found himself being the, you know, the, the sentinel guarding a narrative that had passed him by. And, you know, it felt like, you know, it, it's wrong. It can't happen. This isn't the way it should go. It's not fair. Right. And, uh, and <laughs> the market doesn't care about fairness. It doesn't oh. care about anything. It just care does what it does. And, and one has to adapt to that. And is that, are those some things that like, those are the key, are there any other key traits of, of successful trading that, you know, you've got that flexibility of mind, not getting stuck on a narrative, being malleable. Are there any other points that are just absolutely critical to success? Well, I, you have to learn how to take your losses. So many guys just get crushed by hanging on and just, and it's kind of the same, you know, the other side of the same coin, like that if, um, if you end up being at one of those things where you're just fighting the market over and over again, that can just crush you. So it's kind of almost like you have to be able to forget when you have a bad day, like when something goes wrong and you just almost have to have 
it's not really a thick skin. It's like you, it's like the, you have to have a memory of a goldfish. You just don't, you don't let it bother you. You know, you, you have a bad trade, you mess up, you, you know, you go off. And if you think about it, like think about the other professions in our world, like, uh, like uh, engineers and doctors, they have to be right. Like always, like they go through lives, like engineers, like they they build bridges, you know, like his success rate, his or her success rate has to be a hundred percent. And that's what they strive for. But if, when we think about trading, someone has a success rate of 60%. I think one of the best traders in the world is Stanley Druckenmiller. He's got a success rate of 60%. That means that Stanley Druckenmiller is, is wrong 40% of the time. And sizing, right? So I, I think yeah. Soros used to say that he was uh, one third of the time accurate but he would really size them appropriately so that when he, he had a lot of small losses, but then he had a couple of uh, really, really gargantuan wins. So. Right. And well, I think that was Soros's real strength was uh, for himself was the willingness to just, when the opportunity presented to just go for the jugular. Yeah. yeah. But well, that a bet? what I really like about yeah. Soros is <laughs> yeah. there's a, fair, a famous story about in the, in the eighties when he was running his hedge fund, when he was having a bad run, he would go and fax over his portfolio to Goldman Sachs on Friday afternoon. And he would fax over the entire portfolio and say, I want a, a bid on it. And they would bid him on the whole portfolio and he would go to 100% cash and then start <laughs> over on Monday morning. And I thought like that's really important because he was, you know, sometimes you get a position on and you're, you're just you're keeping it because you've had it on. And, you know, and it's, it's the wrong thing. And it's not until you get the position off that you actually start to think clearly and your, your, your mind starts to do well, the right thing. it's a sunk cost fallacy, right? Yeah. Like you think you owe, it, you owe it to your previous stance or position. That's why I ask you when, you when you write and you put your position in there, you know, how difficult is it to move away from that? Because there, there is a feeling of a sunk cost that you're letting somebody down or letting your previous self down. But if the idea is to have a clean slate every morning, now the, a lot of prop traders, they trade and they go cash overnight and then come back and start over the next day. And that's the right. way they run their business. Yeah. It's, it's something you know, to be said why, about that. One of my big problems is that I try to mix a lot of time frames, and that's yeah. where I get, I run into trouble. So, mm. you know, what's the, what's the old joke? It's like, uh, what's the definition of an investment? It's a trade gone awry or whatever. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I have to be cognizant of that fact that I can't go and turn what was supposed to be a trade into an investment, right? Well, let's talk about that. You have a thesis, right? You're talking about a lot of uh, MMT stuff. Um, you have a position on the inflation trade, you know, classic, you know, well thought out global macro um, thesis. Where the rubber meets the road is a tough part, right? How, how do you position, once you have this macro thesis, how do you go about putting your, your positions in? You said You said something about, your macro, your prop trading, but with quant, how does that come into play for you? So I also use sentiment a lot. So, and, and I will go and I, I like to be on the other side of sentiment. And my big problem is that I actually, once people start agreeing with me, I feel uncomfortable. <laughs> and, and, and it's something that I'm working on is actually as the trade works for me, I stay in it, recognizing that the herd isn't always wrong which is unfortunately what I kind of feel like. 
if, if I go and I always used to laugh about um, my macro tourist pieces, I would write one and there was a while I was just, I was giving them away for free. So I had a wide, wide, broad um, kind of group that would read it. You know, it would be tens of thousands of people would get this. And I would come up with something controversial, like, you know, I want to be, everyone's selling the dollar, US dollar, and I would be bullish the dollar. And if I got emails back telling me, you know, most people were nice, not all of them, but most. If I got emails back telling me that, no, no, you're wrong, this dollar is headed lower, inevitably I found that those, the, the more emails I got, the better the trade it was for me meaning that people were so tied to it. They were so, you know, driven to the, to, you know, to this trade being correct. So I used it as actually a sentiment indicator. And I would actually find that the, when I got the most amount of hate mail, the trades would often work better than any other trades. And when they agreed with me, when I did a trade and then everyone agreed with me, I got nervous. I'd be like, oh God. And inevitably those are the ones that I would be into trouble on. So I use sentiment to a large degree in my trading. But I also kind of tied into a whole global macro view. And what I, you know, we talked briefly about MMT, and that was recently one of the big changes that I went through in terms of understanding the plumbing of how the actual economy works. And I'm an economics major. And if you told me five years ago that I would be actually interested in what an economics professor told me, I would have told you you're insane. Because over the years, I've watched them just cost me money time and time again. They don't seem to understand anything about the real world. They're, all their theories are crap. It, just, just, it was terrible. But what happened was with MMT, I actually didn't understand it. And I, I reached out to a fellow at Bespoke Investment, a, you know, a fellow Canadian by the name of George Perks. And I said, George, I see you're talking about this MMT. Can you put me on the right path? And so he gave me a few things to write or to read, sorry. And I, I, you know, I, I thanked him and I went home and I, and I learned about it. And the more I learned about it, the more I realized that this was explaining how actual markets work. And, and to me, this was what it was. It was almost revolutionary in terms of my thinking because they knew things like QE wouldn't cause inflation. They knew things like EU was doomed to, to have troubles because of the way it was structured. There was a whole bunch of things that they just were completely on the on the ball on and it was difficult to kind of understand it because when you went and heard it like when we talked about they spend money first and they don't borrow and you're like well no that can't be and you kind of you you learn these things and you you hear them and you're like no that can't make sense but if you keep an open mind and and you really go and delve into them you start to understand that the actual plumbing of the economy how the economy works these these MMT folks actually explained it better than anyone else. And so I use the MMT framework in a large degree to understand how the actual economy works. And that was kind of recently one of my clicking. And I, you know, to be fair, I was I was already sympathetic to many of the ideas. Like I always thought during the great financial crisis, it made no sense to me that we were doing quantitative easing and the government was buying bonds when everyone else was buying bonds. I was like, no, the government should be actually issuing bonds and spending, like going out and putting fiber to everyone's home or, or doing in, in fixing the bridges and stuff. It made no sense. So there's already, I was already, I kind of, my thinking was already that way. And it was just MMT 
made it so I could express it in a much more clean way. But anyway, so going back to like how you go and trade all these things, I, I developed kind of a framework for how I think the economy and how the, the markets are going to work. And, and the perfect example is that when we had the COVID crisis, I, at the bottom, you know, I, I, I may have been a little too early, but I think I, I got on to uh, Macro Voices, which is this big podcast, and I, and I got there, and I, and I was really bullish. And I said, the government is going to spend, and the government is going to spend, and we're going to be shocked at, at that demand kind of uh, replacement. We're going to be shocked at what that's going to mean to the market, and we're going to go higher. And you should have seen the hate mail I got. It was just unbelievable. And I think I missed the low by like three days. And the hate mail, it takes everything in my body to not tweet them back to them because they were so mean. But Really? Was, like when you say hate mail, you're not exaggerating? Like no, people... yeah. I actually, one time oh I had an MMT podcast. I had a guy phone me, leave a voicemail telling me that that uh, uh, that I should go to hell and, and all sorts of terrible expl expletives. It was, it's shocking. And I'd be like, bonkers. you know, like I'm like, and, and, and so one of the things I always laugh about these people that take all this stuff too seriously is that we were on a trading desk and we saw the people we traded against all the time. And if we have nobody to trade with, we like, if there's no one willing to take the other side, we have no trade. So I'm always like, I I'm happy when people disagree with me because we can go and trade. And so I have like, I, I don't have a desire to, to prove to you that I'm correct. I have my theory. This is what I'm doing and I'm going to sell it or I'm going to buy it. And the fact that you disagree and you want to do the other side of my trade is, is great because that means it's mispriced. So I, I for what it's worth, Kevin, yeah. you should know and be as wary as you think that uh, warrants, but you have three guys here that actually think that MMT is well within the Overton window and whether we like it or not, it's, bound to become policy, at least in the U.S., and I don't know about other countries. And so yeah. I, I think there's definitely an avenue for us to kind of dig a little deeper into your thoughts on that. But, uh, yeah, I think it's uh, pretty clear. We I, I listened to this Stephanie Kelton in, uh, on the Macro Voice and, 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 and talk about a siren song, man. Like, it, it, she says exactly what you want to hear in terms of in, in this day and age with all the inequality and, 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 and governments – with all this firepower that's been proven not to generate inflation, why not? So there's a deficit myth. I mean, yeah, I'd be, yeah, I'd be interested to dig okay, it Can we cover that for the audience? So those who don't understand just the basics of MMT. Sure. Like so what, what MMT, is. MMT is the idea that governments are never financially constrained or, or certain sovereigns, sovereigns that borrow in their own currency and are able to print are never financially constrained. They are constrained by real resources. And the way to think about that is that if you go and they create debts, they can always pay them back. And you might say, well, no, no, but that's going to cause inflation. And yes, that is correct. That is your constraint. The government can spend until it starts competing with the private sector and causes inflation. And so the MMTers believe that there's no reason to have underutilized resources sitting, you know, docile in the econ in the economy. So if there's someone that doesn't have a job, you should give them a job. And one of the interesting parts about MMT is that it's being kind of taken over by the left, meaning that that a lot of these people that want to spend big and do a lot of government programs have taken it over. But if you go look at the father of MMT is a fellow by the name of Warren Mosler. 
And Warren Mosler is a very famous hedge fund manager, and he's a super entrepreneurial guy. And he's actually fairly right-wing leaning. And he will be the first to tell you that MMT, you know, the decision to spend is a political decision, but you can just as easily cut taxes. And that provides fiscal stimulus. And so one of my, you know, tenants that I've been talking to people for a long time is that Trump is actually being the most MMT president we've ever had. And you'll say, why? And I, and I go, well, he was six, year, eight, six or eight years into an economic cycle. And what did he do? He didn't go and pay down the deficit, the debt. Like he didn't go and try to cut the deficit. He actually did a tax cut. And so if you think about what um, a Keynesian would be telling you, a Keynesian would be telling you at that point that you should be paying down the debt. If you go talk to an Austrian, they would have been telling you that they should be raising rates because it's, it's way too low. Well, what does MMT believe? MMT believes that you should keep, you know, running fiscal loose until you get inflation. And so when they ask Trump, they go, well, you know, why do you want lower rates? Why are you spending all this? He goes, because there is no inflation. Now, you know, I'm, I'm the furthest thing from a Trump supporter. Like, so don't, don't mistake that. I'm just saying that this policy is, has been in place and is actually coming to all sorts of economies throughout the world. And I argue that the COVID crisis was the tipping point for understanding this. Yeah. And, and I, you, I really do think that, that there was a, a dramatic shift. We were going to get there anyways, but the COVID will, we will look back and COVID crisis will be just as monumental as when Volcker went and raised rates and cut the back, you know, stopped inflation. We will look back at 2020 being our 1981 moment when inflation was created. Right. So can you help me understand the part of MMT that, that I'm, I'm, there's a few parts that I'm learning and, and foggy okay. on a little bit, but the, the idea of this, this, the intersection, so monetary confidence, like there's money is just about confidence, right? I think. And so at some point, where does the, this idea that a country with a sovereign uh, currency get a loss of confidence in that currency because they've done too much. Is that a function of inflation? Is that a function of deflation? Like where do we get, because I mean, okay, that's fine. Put all the zeros and ones in the computer, pay off all the debt. Away we go. Start yeah. again. We can start with a clean balance sheet. Why right. bother having any debt? Yeah. At that moment in time though, if you do that, it, 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 it creates a lack of confidence because you've done too much at, at once. Is it, do you have to sort of ease in and, and, watch these levers as you go? Like, how does that play into well, the MMT go. framework? So MMTers will tell you that they will only do as much as until inflation shows up. And I think that therein lies the problem. Right. Me that, too. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and, and I, I, you know, you look at monetarism, which is what we've had for the past four decades. And has it been abused? I would argue it's been tremendously abused. We have negative rates in Europe. Everyone keeps trying to do more and more. You know, we're human beings. We're going to mess it up. We're going to do this. And so I look at MMT and say, we're going to make a mess of this. We're going to do too much of it. Like, and, and there's no doubt in my mind. And I, and I, although I'm sympathetic to the MMT ideas, and I think that if you gave me a choice between MMT and more of the status quo of trying to do QE and all this stuff, I choose MMT. 
I still think it's going to end like not badly, but it's going to change. And, and, and chances are we are going to have inflation. So when you talk about what are the worries in terms of losing confidence and will this happen? The answer is we don't know. Like we, we just don't know. Like eventually you're right. If we do too much of it, we will lose confidence. But here's a little kind of mind um, uh, kind of experiment that I like to tell people. So we have the Bank of Japan has 250% of its GDP outstanding yep. at debt. Okay. So it's got this 250% of GDP outstanding as debt. And who owns half of it? The Bank of Japan. Yep. Well, the government's short and the Bank of Japan is long. Okay. What do you think would happen overnight if they just took the long and short and flattened it? Flattened it out. Yeah. Like, would anything change in the real economy? No, I don't know. Tell me, tell me what it, I don't know. This I don't know. So just ignore markets, like forgettable markets. Yeah, like, like it's, it's the idea is like one man's debt is another man's uh, profit or asset. Uh, the, the moment you try to get rid of debt, when it's real people that you're taking that asset away from, yeah. you are ruining families, you are ruining businesses, you're right. ruining the economy, right? Right. When you take that side off the table and you're dealing with the same government, just like shifting chairs around and nobody, yeah. nobody's really getting hurt by it. Theoretically, I'm sh- I, I haven't thought this through much, but yeah. theoretically, if that's the person getting hurt and they're the same person, really, like once you yeah. get to the MMT, you're no longer an independent Fed, right? right. Like now you're working together. And that's why it's so easy for countries like Argentina to default on their debt over and over because it's overseas holders. Once it's the population of the country that holds most of the debt, it becomes yeah, but it, socially unpalatable. In this, case, for, for in this case, it's not foreigners that own the debt. It's the same com- country that owns it's the, the same debt, country. right? That's right. So the okay. default's never going to happen. So, but let's just imagine they flattened it overnight. I think nothing would happen. And now all of a sudden, the bank, the government of Japan, instead of being 250% outstanding as in terms of the amount of debt, is only 125%. So then you think to yourself, wait, well, isn't that inflationary? Because that means they can go spend another 125%. And which is back to the whole idea that there was never a financial constraint in the first place. And that the real constraint was always inflation, not this, like this whole Carmen Rogoff thing about, you know, this time is different. That's that book. There is nothing worse than that book. And it's not just for the accelerators. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you, this is another example that I love to tell people. So let's go through the great financial crisis and understanding what happened there and how this worked is, is important to understanding how we're going to evolve from here. So up until, you know, in the past four decades, going into the great financial crisis, everything in terms of economic slowdowns was met with lower and lower interest rates. And if I have a pushback to MMT, it's that they focus too much on the government side while ignoring the private side. Because I will acknowledge that the private side can create money. There's two ways you can create money. One is the government can spend it into existence. The other one is banks can go create money by lending, uh, by, you know, you go, you buy a house, government. Fractional, rent, fractional right. system, banking system. Yeah. So what happened was for the past four decades, going into the great financial crisis, every time we had a situation where the economy got into trouble, they lowered interest rates and encouraged the private sector to take more and more debt. And so we had a situation where every, like we encouraged more private debt and it took, lower and lower interest rates 
to encourage more debt because it had all been building up, right? Like if you already have a lot, you know, the next time rates go to 2%, you need them to go to 1% for you to take out another loan. So we, we continually tried to create it through the private uh, private money system, like through the banking system. But then the great financial crisis hit. The great financial crisis hits, we go to zero, and lo and behold, you put rates to zero and nobody wants to borrow. Nobody. It just it's, it's just a disaster. The private sector says, no, we got too much of this stuff. We have to stop borrowing. So at this point, credit is being contracted. Okay, we have contraction of credit. And yet, what does the government do? You know, we forget, but there was Obama was faced with this whole Tea Party revolution. And if you go look at the discretionary spending of the federal government over the past four decades, there were only three years when it fell before the great financial crisis. It was 1964, 1968. So it was Lyndon, it was, it was JFK and Lyndon. And I think it had to do with uh, the, the, the war and they were worried about the war. And then it was 96 with Clinton. Every other year, the federal government spent more on a year over year basis, you know, in real dollars. So they just kept growing and spending more and more and doing bigger and bigger deficits. And then all of a sudden, we get into the great financial crisis. We say to ourselves, oh, look, this debt is the problem. We have to stop spending. We went through five years when the discretionary budget of the federal government fell. So at an exact time when the government should be spending, we were actually cutting, or the Americans were cutting. You know, Canadians were, I don't know, I haven't looked at in terms of what we were doing. But in general, the world was doing the same thing. Governments were issued, doing pro-cyclical fiscal cuts when they should be doing the exact opposite. And so that's why we had QE one, two, three, Operation Twist, because the reality was that that fiscal was not only not helping, was actually making the situation worse. And so this is when I go back and, and talk about how COVID has changed. I think in the past, you know, decade, we've had the opportunity to understand this problem. And now when we hit the zero bound, even Powell is sitting there begging them to spend and which they did. And that is really what is so dramatically different. So, so how do we, how do we balance? So the, the spend is one thing and then there's the productivity of the spend. Yeah. So I a hundred percent agree with you there. And I think that is one of the things when you're thinking about where to invest in the, in the coming years, it, you should ask yourself, is the government just handing out money so people can sit at home and watch Netflix? Which, listen, they might have to do in the terms of this, but eventually, you know, where do they invest is going to matter. And I like, take your company. If you guys went out and took a loan and, you know, let's say you got the killers to come play and you had a great party and, you, you know, it was like a great evening out. You, you took that million bucks and you blew it all in a night. Okay, that would be stimulative over the short run. But over the long run, you wouldn't have made your company any better. Now, if you'd taken that million dollars out, bought computers, hired people, stuff, it would be dramatically different. So I agree that, that, that one of the problems with MMT, and this is my big kind of pushback to, Mike, uh, to Paul Krugman, is that he argues, you know, if you dug a ditch and then got someone to fill it in, that that would be good. And I would argue that ultimately what that does if it's not spent correctly, it means that you're going to hit your limit on the inflation all the more quickly. 
And that's kind of my pushback. Yeah, that it's productive right. without and productive the, without the commensurate right. growth right. To, to cover the level of inflation that's occurring. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and that, like that's gonna, where I get nervous. Yeah. You're going to get, you're going to get from, I think we are, Dalio said this, that it's all of a sudden you're going to get, allocate resources through fiscal policy, right? You're, you're allocating global resources through fiscal policy. It is a government controlled spend. It's a government controlled Centrally planned spend. economy all of a sudden. Cent- right. Kind of centrally planned economy. And you're now competing against the private sector for that. Right. So depending on what you're going to do, like. Yeah. It, so you're going to get different inflation on how you, like, depending yeah. on how you spend it. Right. Yep. Like if you go out and you, you spend it on, I don't know, the green, like if you go spend it on green, then all of a sudden you're going to find that whatever it takes to build all the green energy, you're going to be competing against them. So you mm-hmm. will get different inflation depending on what you do. This is the other thing is, you know, like I always joke and say, if I was a benevolent dictator of Europe and I would immediately raise rates from negative 100 basis points to positive 100 basis points, and I would cut taxes and spend until the economy balanced. But I would also cut taxes. Like I wouldn't just think that that, that it, all the solution is government spending because I think that the lot of you know extent cutting taxes is going to be more beneficial and let the private sector decide where to spend it. So as a whole, let me put my uh, my liberal hat on. As a whole, that does make sense. It'll likely grow the pie, right? You cut right. taxes, you get more capital markets. The capital markets work to grow up the pie. Uh, socialism works to shrink the pie. Um, the question really is, when you do that, when you cut taxes, then it's up to that centrally planned government spend in order to minimize that wealth gap. Because if you're just growing the pie where only the capitalists, the people with resources and money and capital um, and, and um, the education are the ones benefiting from that, you are going to create a wealth gap that's going to create some sort of social unrest, right? So this is really where you need to, the spend needs to be done in such a way where you're minimizing that. What, that what, is the, what about if, instead of cutting taxes at the upper end, what if you cut taxes at the lower end? Right. What if mm-hmm. you did a payroll yeah. cut, cut, cut? Make it progressive, right? Because yeah. Yeah, the, the, the propensity to spend happens much lower in the, uh, in, in the social strata, if you will. Uh, and, and that kind of plays into what I was going to ask you, because you mentioned Europe and you mentioned uh, Japan earlier on. And, and, the two striking features there, I would say, uh, for this inflation function is demographics, right? So h- how do you factor that uh, aspect of it? Aging populations, people uh, uh, that have stepped outside of the workforce. And uh, inflation, at the end of the day, is a, is a monetary phenomenon. It's a behavioral phenomenon, in a sense, because if you don't have uh, uh, people spending into the, uh, into the future, how are you going to create that inflation? So I think that demographics, all it does is end up being a headwind or a tailwind for you. But I think it's never the driving factor that you should use as your kind of investment mantra. So I, I know there's very famous people out there like Lacey Hunt and other deflationists who have argued for a long time that demographics and all the debt outstanding will cause inflation. I think that if we listen to them and we continue to, to try to balance budgets and we do all these things that are actually pro-cyclical cuts, we will get the deflation they're worried about. But I think that all that's missing in terms of creating inflation is the political will. And we go back to the example with Japan. Japan, you know, we, we could, you could argue they have 250% of debt to GDP, but do they really? 
because you know the, the Bank of Japan owns half of it. So the reality is that maybe it's 125. So I think that people that base their investment decisions based upon demographics run the risk of getting run over when the political landscape changes in terms of this way that we operate our economy. So, but, but don't, don't mistake what I'm saying. I, I definitely think that demographics make it easier or harder to create that inflation. But at the end of the day, if we want to make inflation, we can make it at any time. And I think it's hilarious that people tell me that this economy, that, that we're going to have deflation and we're going to implode. I always ask them, give me an economy that has ever collapsed because of deflation. Like, I can't think of one. Like, like there's none. And yet I can name a lot that have collapsed because of inflation. So I think these bond bulls that are sitting around arguing that we're, you know, 50 basis points or 65 basis points on the 10 year, and we're about to go to negative four, you know, 400 basis points, which I've heard are just absolutely insane. And they're playing the worst um, version of musical chairs that one day when this shift occurs, which I think I, I've argued we have shifted, and as long as we continue down this road that we entered into, meaning that we continue to spend as needed, that we are going to enter into a period of inflation. And there's nothing worse that you know in a period of inflation than owning bonds. Kevin, can I just, I want to understand that part, the, that okay. last part there, this idea that you have, Let's say we have inflation, right? But we know right. that the Fed, the governments of the world can't service the, the, the amount of interest that they need to, to pay back, right? So there, right. there's been talk about the, the governments of the planet being able to, to uh, artificially keep that rate low. How do, they, how do we keep that rate low while also benefiting from inflation, you know, reducing your, your real um, debt on the balance sheet? So my best guess is that the government's going to leave the front end pinned at extremely low rates as they go out and they do fiscal spend, and then they'll have it pinned, the, the front end pinned. There is the risk, too, that we are going to get yield curve control, the YCC. And if that happens, you know, I, I think it'll be the death of the bond market. The reality is think about like all the people on Wall Street, Bay Street, you know, in, in London, the trade bonds, that it's going to be like the JGB market. Like if you ever, I think there's days that there's no JGBs that trade. And so that's what we risk. And to me, when I think about the signal that the bond market sends, I think it's an important signal. So if I was advising people, I would say, make sure you let the front long end trade because it'll give you the inflation signal that we're so worried about. So, but in terms of I'm thinking about investors when they're, when they're thinking about it, you know, best case scenario happens is that we get yield curve control and you, you make your nominal amount on your bond and you don't get hurt. Worst case scenario occurs, we get a decade of 5% inflation and you get destroyed on a real basis. And that's really what I think is going to happen. Because figure out what a, a decade of 5% does to the, to the debts outstanding. It, it, it really picks away at it and it makes a big difference, right? Like, I think that's the only way up for them. Yeah. So, 
you know, I don't know exactly how it's going to look and it's going to depend and it's, it's going to be a, a dance back and forth. But I, I really do think that when I, when I sit around and think about the risks to this, to investors today, I think that the risk that everyone owns bonds with the idea that they've been a great diversifier against their risk assets, they've been negatively correlated for the past 40 years. They've gone from, you know, 18% in the long end down to, to whatever stupid number we're at now. It's been a great asset. But I, I really worry that, that that ballast to your portfolio will become an anchor. And in a times of in periods of inflation, if you go back and you look, stocks and bonds aren't actually negatively correlated. And in, in, like in the 60s and the 50s, I think they were, they were actually you know, positively correlated. And that's what I'm concerned about the most. Right, the 70s for sure. There's a function of, the, of a discount rate, right? Here's assets yeah. that have cash flows. There's a discount rate. The real rate is uh, negative. And so I also want your, would love your thoughts on the, a, a couple of hazards that occur in all of this, right? You have the, the moral hazard of irresponsible risk-taking, if you will, which can lead to less productive investments of assets. I also think there's there's a there's a regulatory hazard. So you have now officials who are not elected, who have an awful lot of control in the economy to some extent. Do you have any thoughts on on the regulatory hazards that that the banks face, sort of akin to what happened in in Japan to some sense? Um, any kind of thoughts on on that on the the powers being put into a place? You have less and less banks. As, a, as an example, so you've got a central bank and then you're, you're having this contraction of banks, larger and larger um, banks rather than smaller, more diversified banks being controlled by a fewer and fewer group of people. Does MMT alleviate that regulatory hazard? Does it um, accentuate that? Have, have, you, have you have any thoughts on that? So I, so again, remember that MMT is, is a description of how the economy works right? and the, and the, the decisions based upon that understanding of how the economy works are political decisions. And this is one of the things that I just like to stress is that everyone thinks that MMT is like this AOC, AOC uh, spend, you know, green, you know, all these things. It could just as easily be tax cuts. It doesn't have to be government. Right. So you, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm wary of just kind of saying that's MMT because that's not MMT. MMT is, right. is the broad framework in terms of understanding right. how the economy works. It's how it, how it will be manifest. Yeah. It's yeah. outside of the ivory tower, if you will. It's, it's outside of economic orthodoxy and it's just a different way to, to uh, make sense of how the economy works. Right. And, and, it, and it's, it's, it's taking in reality. The fact is that we were on a gold standard and, you know, until Nixon took us off. And we, the books, the economics books that we were using were all based upon us being on that gold standard. And then we went to a fiat, you know, system and we didn't change any of our economics books. We didn't change any of our thinking. And, you know, again, do I think the MMT will be abused? Do I think the politicians will take this, spend too much? Yeah, for sure. Do I think that they'll start like making, uh, uh, irresponsible investments? Do I think that it'll cause all the things that you're worried about? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. It's coming. So get yourself ready for it and just kind of, you know, that's the reality of it. And I think that the perfect example is just understanding, think about how bearish everyone was at the Corona crisis low. They were convinced we were going to implode. 
And yet the government goes and like, we, we take it for granted now because it seems so long ago, but very few people thought the government could stand in here and create the, 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 both the bounce in the economy and bounce in the market like it has. And I think everyone's been shocked at that, right? Like there was a lot of people who thought that this thing was going to implode. This was going to be a great depression. And yet the economy bounced. And, and the reality is, yeah, you could say that at what cost they've gone and they created this debt. But again, we went through the example with Japan. Is it really the debt? And like, maybe we're thinking about things wrong. You know, that's, and that's what I like to put out there. And that's in terms of like, when you're thinking about your trading, you have to think about when you're going through a, one of these title shifts, it, like, and in, in, in when you're thinking about how the world has changed, if COVID really is this change in the way we've thought about deficits and the way we thought about uh, economics, then there could be some huge kind of ramifications to your portfolios. Like I, like I go back to 81 back then there was uh, Henry Kaufman was uh, a huge inflation bull for, for Solomon brothers. And he was doctor, the original Dr. Doom. And he thought that inflation, there was no way you're going to stop, but not a chance. And he went on and on. He was so bearish on bonds and stuff. And he rolled that thing all the way, like, like yields went down, 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 down. And he stayed bearish bonds the whole way. Meaning like he was, he thought yields were going to go back up, that inflation was going to be there. And I think there's going to be, the Henry Kaufman's of this generation, and as when we look back at this, Kevin, it's the fact you talk a lot about inflation, and we haven't seen it in such a long time that people almost have given up on it. That they've written it off, yeah, yeah. for sure. But Kevin, it sounds like you you, you found you find this current uh, equity bull run sustainable uh, to to some degree, given that you, you you weren't as surprised as I guess most people were as as stocks bottomed around March. But uh, if you think about how, how uh, thin the breadth of this equity bull run is, it's on the back of fangs plus a handful of other uh, uh, sort of uh, technology adjacent uh, industries that have benefited from from the lockdown or, or the, the walking forward of, of how people imagine the economy in the coming years. Do, do, is this something that you would imagine will continue going forward? There's a lot of lagging stocks. And so... First of all, if you can tell me, if are we going to go and elect um, some deficit hawks? Are we going to go put, you know, the Congress in terms of the U.S.? Is is it going to go to Republican and we're going to get a situation like we had in with Obama, where you have a Democratic president and a Republican, you know, Senate that was stopping spending? And if that's the case, then I'm I'm not bullish equities because one of the things that's all important is that we continue to spend as needed as we get through this this crisis. And I think, I can't remember which one of you mentioned the fact that uh, it's an accounting uh, kind of uh, reality is that one person's credit is another person's debit and one person's debit is another's credit. The, the deficit of the government is, is the private sector's credit. And I know that that's, a crazy thought to think about. And it's very difficult for people to wrap their heads around. But if we get into a situation where we try to get the deficit down and we actually try to balance the books, I wouldn't be as bullish as I am on equities currently. So that that's the, the, the truth of the matter there in terms of it's, it's predicated upon this wave of spending and new uh, kind of thinking continuing. 
And in the moment I see that changes, I'll change with it. But for now, I, I look at, you know, we talked about Stephanie Kelton and how she's gaining prominence and people are listening to her. I think that more and more we're getting people that realize that, that what we thought was true wasn't the case. And there's no need for us to, to sit around and try to balance this budget and sit around talking about what we're going to leave to our kids and stuff. Like one of the things that I always laugh at, and I think the MMP people do a good job of that. They always say, why is there always money for war? And yet there's not money for welfare or, you know, feeding kids at lunch or whatever it is. Right. Like think about, think about world war two when the, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, do you think the Americans went and said, we better check with the market to see what the, what we can borrow. No, they just went and spent like, and, and, and yeah, eventually it's going to create inflation. And one of the things that I always, I, I like to talk about as well on that is that people say, no, no, they didn't go spend. They actually borrowed it in, in war bonds. And, and one of the things about the war bonds is they actually did that after the fact they first spent. And the reason that they did the war bonds is because they wanted to change the people's behavior. If you're thinking about yourself as a government and you're trying to build as many ships as you can and as many guns and, you know, everything you need to, you know, facilitate a war, the last thing you need is some guy going out and buying a new Buick. So what you do is you go and you actually encourage him to give you, instead of spending that money on a new Buick, to buy in a war bond. And, and this is one of the to things. To make that, weapons, right? Yeah. You're, 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 you have limited fight. resources. Yeah. You have limited yeah. resources. The last thing you want to do is compete against the resources you need to build those. Exactly. And but so, the, the economy was still the gold standard. So we have to factor that in as well. We were in the fiat system where you could just print it away. So the, the, there was some reckoning there towards the ballast to which the, the economy was beholden to. So That's correct. You're absolutely, you're absolutely right. No, I, I don't disagree at all. But, but, no, but it's but, interesting. But, if there is no impact to spending. Then it is. It does beg the question. You know, why don't you spend enough so you can get the lowest, most poor individuals in the United States to a higher level by just printing some money? Hence the name of the book, the, de- the, the the deficit myth, right? Yeah, so that, that's why it's called. So, it. so, so then it's then it really is a matter of maximizing the productivity of the spend. So, like, right. why can we spend on war but not on education? As, right. a, as an example, like that, if I was going to prioritize yeah, because things, because war actually facilitates capital formation. Uh, yeah, it's a good point, and 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 to the to the winner of the war go the spoils, right? So there is a function of war that should create um, more spoils for the winner, and the the loser of the war is is wiped out for for you know. Well, yeah, essentially, its cap it, its assets are seized. For the, Correct. For the productive purposes. Yeah, but I don't, I don't think, though, that if you go look at the Iraq war, that, the, that you could argue that that was money well spent <laughs> and then there was assets seized. All right, all right, fine. Yeah. I don't know. Did we lower the cost of oil? Did we lower yeah. the cost of oil? Yeah. Yeah. Fair. Not all wars are like that. I will grant you that. For sure, yeah. for sure. If, if yeah. I may, I'm wondering, uh, in the event that, and I think we all are in agreement, perhaps violently, that uh, MMT is coming, what is the highest convexity trade in that direction? That's, that's a great question. Um, I think one of the things that, that, that I don't know if it's the highest convexity, but I think it's the one trade that people will, that need to be aware of is that they need to think about owning inflation break-evens. For me, that's like, I kind of have two trades that I really believe in. One is the steepener. I think that the curve eventually goes steeper. The trouble about the steepener is the fact that we have a situation where the government might do yield curve control. So I worry about that, but, uh, but I'll, 
fundamentally, I feel like you should just always be long the steepener. But the second so banks, right? Uh, Banks are lever to the steepener too. Right. Okay. So you own the banks, um, and they're cheap right now as well. Like so, the reality is it's a great trade. But in terms of longer term, I think the thing you want to own is inflation break evens, and I think it's going to be the the home run trade in terms of if you think about you're a pension fund and you have at you know you have a liabilities. What you know? Yes, you can buy gold, and gold will hopefully track inflation. But the reality is that people, a lot of people, don't realize gold actually tracks real rates more than it tracks inflation. And the you only, get to keep what you have, yeah, yeah. And the real thing that that you know the break-even trade, meaning that you're long tips and you're short the equivalent nominal bonds, so that you extract only the inflation. I think will be. Right now, very few people can imagine inflation ever coming. Even though we're talking about it a little bit now, most people are not designed for this. Like most portfolios are hugely exposed to this. And uh, so I think- 40 still prevails, right? For 90% plus of the- uh... Well, the greatest indicator of whether or not the public or certainly the investment public perceives risk of inflation is if we see an increase in the issuance of inflation-protected bonds. Right. I mean, the 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 outstanding uh, nominal of inflation protected bonds is a vanishingly small fraction of the of the size of the nominal bond market that will change fundamentally over the course of any sort of inflationary episodes. And unless the government's scared to issue them and then they're going to go to even more big premium like so well, they'll I- issue whichever debt is cheaper. Right. So you but know, the, you the know government who, is always overly optimistic. Yeah, you're right. So, but, <laughs> but I suspect that what you're going to see is right now, if you go look at the, the inflation break evens, they, they have a lot of the curve is below 2%, meaning they don't think the government can even achieve or the central bank can even achieve their, their target. And so I, I argue that I think you could see those things going from under 2% to 5 because people realize it's the only thing to protect them. Right in terms of actual inflation protection, if you go look at one of our big Canadian uh, pension plans, Ontario Teachers, you'll see that they actually divide up their portfolio in terms of stocks, bonds, real assets, and they have a fourth one, and that's actually called inflation. Right, and so it's not like it's not you know when they own some you know infrastructure product that goes into the real bucket, but then they have an inflation bucket. And the inflation bucket is long break-evens, long inflation swaps, just pure inflation. And I think they're one of the few pension plans that have actually done this. But I suspect that before this is all through, that there'll be many more that do this. The great thing about Ontario teachers is they model themselves after all weather. So, uh, oh, did they? They're, yeah, I didn't they're know a risk that. parity um, shop, which is, um, is kind of neat. So but, what are the what are the implications then on on this on the inflation trade for for equities? So that's going to be really hard to tell because do you do you price equities like let's say the curve got really steep do you price them based upon like what do you change how do you change your discount rate do you change it based upon the long end or the short end and is it a real asset that you want to use in terms of when there's limited amount like ultimately I actually think that inflation that equities do better than people are expecting because there's, there's not enough, there's just not enough things to buy. And then let's just face it. There's a lot of equities up pricing power, but it could be a, a huge change in terms of what does well. Like if you think about right now, it's growth has done really well and growth is actually a longest duration asset 
because there's ne- there's all of the growth is out no the yield That's, and there's yeah no and so there's no yield and so it's the ultimate kind of beneficiary of the long end going down in terms of yield so i think as we go into this new environment we could see a situation where there's a huge shift and old you know kind of economy stocks do better and then if you top it all off in that i suspect we're going to see a political shift from wall street continually winning to more and more main street winning over wall street so i think that there's there's the potential for some huge dramatic shifts and and real money to be made within the stock market i'm hopeful that it just causes a kind of a, a rotation and that you get new winners and new you know and so the the fangs go down and some other ones go up but uh, you know but for the market cap fangs are 30 percent of the stock market so no, yeah. I completely get it. Listen, I'm about that. I, I am concerned about that. If you had to make me guess, I guess if we got too violent of a shift, it would actually cause the stock market to go down. So you, I could completely see a situation where the fangs get crushed for 30% and the stock market ends up being 15 down, 15 or 10 or something. And 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 one of the things like you guys are, are a quant shop and you guys understand this better than almost anyone else, but Think back to like, what was it, 07 when we had the quant crash or whatever it was? And people outside the market don't understand how violent that was and what was happening in terms of within, you know, rotation within markets. And I suspect that the possibility of a quant crash again is way higher than people believe. Well, you don't need to be that dramatic either. Like it could be just be the sort of 98 to 2000 uh, period where value stocks did did well while, while tech or sorry, value stocks kind of flatlined while tech continued to, to, to run and then tech crashed in 2000, 2003, and then value stocks kind of right. continued to run um, despite the sort of index bear market, right? That, that sort of rotation yeah. is also feasible. So here, I have a question for you. In 2000, it was Julian, uh, Julian at, at uh, Tiger that mm-hmm. was the, the kind of the, the tapping out, right? The person yep. that kind of tapped out. I, I saw recently there was some $10 billion value That's fund. Right. That yeah, That's right. Yeah, I forget his name, but I did see one of the huge value funds wound up. Are we there? Yeah. Are we there? So I do want to be conscious of time. Okay. It is 401 for you. Okay, Karen. I should get going. Yeah, you got to get going. I'm so. sorry I chatted so much. I didn't listen to what you guys. I'd love, you know what? It's been a pleasure being on with you guys. I'd love to hear more about what you guys think about inflation and how you guys are actually adapting to it because I know that it's something that in terms of the whole risk parity model that you guys are uh, being focused on a lot, right? Yeah, I've yeah. been hoping, I, I'm actually hoping that you guys can stick around because I have a few questions for the rest of you guys okay, on that sure. particular we, we topic. We can hang out. Okay. But anyway. you got, Kevin's got to go. Okay. We will do this again. It's all always right. great to chat. Thank you, Kevin. Sorry right. I joined late. No problem. It's a pleasure meeting you guys all. Thank you for taking the time. We'll do Thanks, it. Kevin. You were awesome. Bye-bye. Thanks, bye. So I have a question for you guys, right, that I've been mulling over. When you think about this idea of, of protecting for inflation, even even if we say that you ask for the highest convexity trade, a five-year break-evens, like what does that actually mean? Does it mean that if you have 100 cents on the dollar and there is a high inflation scenario that's going to take your earnings or your real you know, purchasing power down by half, that by bu- buying something like that, you are going to simply offset it? so that you are not any better or any worse you're just simply surviving or you can buy inflation we, swaps you can buy if you buy inflation swaps you'd like put a little bit of nominal down and you can get massive levered exposure to the inflation accretion right 
relative to nominal. So it's yeah. just really like That's how far out the curve you want to go yeah. and how much on the inflation. Well, yeah. So let's go back. Sorry, Mike. I just want to crystallize a thought. So let's go back to the concept of, you know, something like risk parity, which is not trying to predict the future, right? And let's say that the inflation assets that we're looking at have an allocation of 25% because it, you know, this is a non-levered risk parity. What happens to the real value of that portfolio during an inflationary scenario, right? I mean, necessarily you're just, you're just kind of losing less with only 25% exposure or let's say a third real exposure. Well, I mean, first of all, like inflation. what's your consumption basket? So losing less, right? If, if your consumption basket is not, um, doesn't contain a lot of the things that are inflating at, a, at the highest rates, then you're not actually losing very much purchasing power, right? If, if your consumption basket is filled with things that are like many people's are or have been over the last 30 years, if your consumption basket is, I got to pay for my kid's education, I got to buy a new home, I got to buy for pay for healthcare, the inflation rates of these services has gone up at much at a much higher rate than CPI, CPI. right? Yeah. Or the GDP deflator. Go ahead, Mike. Sorry. What so this was this was the conversation you and I had yesterday, right? There's there's two dynamics at play here. There's the asset price, and it can have a collapse or it can increase. It's your purchasing bucket and the deflation that can occur or the by i don't mean deflation in the traditional sense i purchasing mean that power the, the purchasing power loss that your currency that you're holding can also accrue so for each individual these things are slightly different and the losses can happen in an innumerable number of ways you can have asset prices collapse you can have inflation eat in as asset prices are maintained um, and and all of the um uh, circumstances in between those two extremes. And so that's what you, this is what I was kind of wrestling with too, Adam. How do, is there a clear way to delineate that? I'm not sure that there is. It is a, it's a bit I of agree. a continuum. I, I mean, the, the government is dimensions. in charge of what they put in the, in the consumption basket, yeah. what they put in the GDP deflator, how they, how they define CPI. So there's this whole ambiguity. The government's able to actually control the rate that they adjust the inflation protected bonds by adjusting the way that they calculate the rate of inflation of the consumption basket. They can change the constituents, they can change the hedonic adjustments, they can change the seasonality adjustments. There's all kinds of things that they can do. Notwithstanding that, it depends on the type of inflation, right? If you've got inflation um, like we saw in the 1970s, which was which was largely just um, major supply shocks and commodities due to political upheaval or or you know other other sort of external dynamics. Then you're going to see a major sh shoot higher in the um, in the commodities, but you didn't have huge wage inflation in the 1970s, right? Like it was very commodity driven. If you have wage inflation as the major driver, then what you want is something that is is going to do well with CPI driven inflation. That's where you want to have sort of tips, tips. in in yeah. the basket, right? But if you have a global currency devaluation then that is where you want to have gold, right? So it's, or, or, or maybe sort of real estate or some other assets. The point being, 
we don't really know how inflation is going to manifest. We don't know how it's going to affect you as an individual in your consumption basket, which just means you want to diversify your inflation hedges, right? Right. And that, that could include home, currency. You want to own some gold. You want to own some tips. You want to own some diversified commodities. But you want to diversify to the greatest extent possible, which is kind of just thematically consistent with how we think about the problem in general. And if a country but, that you're in wins the currency war, meaning they devalue their currency more than anybody else, what you actually want as an investor is own the other currencies, right? Sure. But again, like there's there's different things that you need to diversify in in order to mitigate the possible many inflation scenarios to talk, that we talk about. Well, I think the interesting thing here is what is the likely inflation outcome of an MMT type policy, which is targeted at making sure capacity utilization in the economy is at the highest level, making sure that employment is at the highest level. And so that there could be a tendency in that construct that it is a wage type inflation, wage inflation that that is the push. And so that would be the thing to think about. It, I mean, it's a it's a speculation. I, I agree with you, Adam, that the first place to start is, well, let's let's not let's not be too sure about which way it's going to manifest. Let's just take a. Let's and, take and a Brian really broad in, view. In, in the comments makes a really good point. It's never you don't get rewarded for buying tips for the inflation that everybody expects. Correct. Yeah, right. You get rewarded for the inflation that nobody expects. Right. You get rewarded for unexpected inflation. Yeah, that's it's, a really, it's really the good point. You have to for the government also potentially, as you mentioned earlier, changing the basket of how they calculate yeah. CPI. So putting all that aside. If the market catches on to potentially not perceiving, however, the market, uh, however, the government is measuring inflation through CPI as being a true measure of inflation, and then perhaps real rates are are, are using another basket, or, or at least there's this other way of measuring inflation that is much higher than the the official measured CPI, then you you might make a strong case for gold since it is very positively correlated to real rates. That real rate, even though it's not expressed via CPI could still provide uh, gold with that uh, highest convexity trade that you were uh, looking for. Well, yeah, like that's what's, what does Mike Green always say? Like, you know, or not Mike Green, it was um, Diego Perilla, right? And what you what you never need to forget is that the government can always change the rules and they will, right? So if they have inflation protected bonds and they don't like they have they have to pay out based on that inflation, well, they can simply change the characterization of the of the basket, right? there's I, many I, things you know, that they can do. I want to. I want to shift. You know, maybe we have. Maybe we haven't finished with the inflation part of the discussion. So we can. If if we haven't, then I'm happy to sort of indulge further discussion in that dimension. But on the MMT front, what occurred to me is everybody focuses on inflation. Is that the only thing that we need to be concerned about? Is that the only currencies? No. I think so, the other, the no, other but, side but of even this. currencies is really just like the relative purchasing power. It's like relative levels of inflation. Right. Well, are you talking? Are you asking about uh, concern about in terms of market dynamics or social unrest? Because I think there's a it's lot more to worry social about. Social unrest to me. Yeah. It's more 100. percent Every every conversation I've heard from from Kelton, I, I haven't heard anything from most. I've read some essays and some distillations, but everything I read, it's a focus on how can we increase aggregate aggregate wealth, not like median wealth or median prosperity or something like this, but aggregate wealth. And to to the to the maximum extent without triggering a change in inflation expectations, because it's this feedback loop on inflation expectations. Once people perceive that they need to be worried about inflation, they change their behavior, and it creates 
inflation. So this seems so, to be the only thing that dominates the conversation, but these are not the only thing that matters to a cohesive, productive, fruitful social fabric, society of people who are happy and who buy into the social experiment. And what we're seeing in terms of social tensions and, and because of wealth inequality and, and what that has done to the fabric of society of a lot of tension. I mean, obviously, everybody looks at the U.S. and, and how polarized they are. And uh, especially now that you're you're coming up into the, the uh, presidential elections, but it's happening all over the place. I mean, Canada, I think, has a more muted version of it, but it's happening in Brazil. It's happening in Europe. It's happening all over the place. So I, 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 I well, definitely sympathize with that. Like, look, you have much like Kevin said, right? MMT doesn't need to be fiscal spending. It could be cutting taxes. And it really does depend that on... That exacerbates the challenge. I know, right? I know, but that's my point. My point is it depends on the, poli on the, on the uh, political party that takes control of this new MMT, right? If you have the Republicans who don't think that the government can, can spend in as well as a capitalist system, right? So they're going to do as much as possible to be fiscally frugal and thoughtful. And if they're going to do anything, they're going to do it at the that's tax not, cut that's side. That's not the current Republican Party. You're thinking well, about it the is, no, no, no. Republican Party. No, no, no. I'm thinking, I'm thinking about the last few weeks, the Republicans not wanting to give as much money for the, uh, for the COVID uh, spend as, they did, as, the, as the Democrats do. So my view is that if you get a, the Democrats on board, the type of spending that they're going to do is going to be more about minimizing that wealth gap. It doesn't It's going to be matter. direct money. It could, the, what, what it, of course it Kevin matters. actually made the perfect, most distilled point imaginable about MMT. Debits on the, on the federal balance sheet are credits on the public balance sheet. And the credits accrue to those who don't need to spend the excess. So if you're, if you're extremely rich and you get, you, your proportion is, is higher than the rest because you own a company and all spending mm -hmm. needs to flow through, through company uh, income statements, right? But you are already very wealthy and your marginal propensity to spend is very small. Much then the Kalecki equation makes it abundantly clear that the vast majority and, and at the limit all of that mm -hmm. excess credit accrues to those who don't need to spend. Which is why you need to have a thoughtful policy to redistribute that wealth. And generally speaking- But that's never part of the conversation. I hear no, constantly a discussion about MMT. And, and uh, UBI, all of that is based on trying to take money away from that 1%. It doesn't. The money, it, no, continues no, no. To it continues to drive higher the the Gini coefficient of the uh, of the wealth distribution. You need more progressive taxation alongside much distribution more. alone will not change the wealth distribution because every dollar spent out of that out of that thousand dollars or ten thousand or hundred thousand dollars a month, whenever they decide that they want to put a pin in it, all of that flows to the corporate balance sheet and it all flows to profit margins. Sorry, is that my house? That's that's, one of <laughs> that's my your house. house yes. <laughs> that's your dog so, doesn't like your so argument. The point is you cannot happy hour. You cannot reduce the wealth gap through MMT. It can only exacerbate it. You can only reduce the wealth gap through redistribution and yeah, taxation. Yeah, you want taxes. And the question is, right now everybody believes that they need to pay taxes because there's accountability to fiscal prudence. Once nobody believes there's accountability to fiscal prudence, why is anybody motivated to pay taxes? 
because everybody wants to lower everybody else's rate of inflation. Okay, so so what happened in the New Deal back in the 30s? What, how did that go about? And how did that help minimize well, that? Well, in the 30s, people had already lost massive amounts of wealth, including the rich, right? Keep in mind, the stock market declined 90% between 1929 and 1932. The wealthy took it on the chin as well. And then Roosevelt stepped in. So everybody, we they'd already massively flattened the wealth curve. By 1932, 1933, the wealth curve was as flat as it has ever been. And then they began massive MMT type policies. So they created a whole new class of rich through the end of the war. Now, let me but you started from a level playing field. Now you're starting from an well, already, a playing field that's already you, where it was in 1929. Sure? So the robber barons were right in that era. So they were just before that Correct. period. So you're saying after 29, the robber barons, th- their wealth was shrunk to the extent that it flattened the wealth curve. I'm, I'm not aware of that. Is, Correct. Is that that's, okay. Think about so, it. Where All their wealth yeah. was in capital assets. Capital well, assets deflated to the tune and, of and it wasn't even it wasn't even stock markets, right? The stock market was a very small portion of the exactly. overall economy. Estate, so it was actual private companies, oil, the oil being pumped by Standard Oil and, and Carnegie and his steel and et cetera, et cetera, all of these things, massive unemployment, massive capacity, underutilization. So all of those things were there. So you, at that point, you have to, I mean, you could, you could, we certainly have the wealth gap today, obviously at an extreme, not seen since the robber baron era. So yeah, I guess, how do we, how do we punish the rich? It's really? easy yeah. to <laughs> implement aggressive MMT when we when the rich have already taken their share of losses. Yeah. Right now, the rich have gotten richer while everybody's gotten poorer. And so, now so we're going to implement MMT. Is because every dollar spent from, you know, you get, you get $1,000 a month to everybody on the planet and they actually use it productively, right? You grab it and you create, become an entrepreneur. A lot of people maybe may not, they would just spend. And because that spend goes to the corporate balance sheets, you're saying the rich are going to continue to get richer and that disparity is going to get bigger and bigger. That, that's assuming that the $1,000 you give them is like we, t- we talked about productive debt, productive capital and productive capital. Is every single person that receives that thousand dollars a month going to be unproductive and just buy more Amazon packages? What do you mean? Or are they going to invest? The vast majority of people that are going to receive that money are going to buy food, gasoline for their cars. Their propensity to spend is a lot higher. But what percentage of the population is going to use it to start a business? Right. This is Um, a big push on the UBI. uh, A big conversation about this. If you listen to Andrew Yang. And and he's got data to back it up. Is that people will use it to make build their own companies, build their own businesses, create more productive capital. I mean, this is how this is how you reduce no, the wealth gap. Is you give no, enough, that's you not, give capital you, that and assets. That does not reduce the wealth gap. It creates more business. It creates mm-hmm. a more dynamic economy. Mm-hmm. It creates more services and goods, but it exacerbates the wealth gap. The only way to um, close the wealth gap is through redistribution or through a massive collapse in asset prices. Period, full stop. Those are the only two ways. You cannot do it by growing the economy. Growing the economy- Is a a tax thing, right? We can accomplish that by taxing the very rich, or you don't think we can? I mean- No, no, I I think you can, and I think that they will, uh, but you can't do it by income because income is such a ludicrously small fraction of wealth. That it's the income taxes are and not. the effect of compounding. But I, I want to tie this back to it's, it's sort of to what we it's what Kevin was saying. It's not what we think should happen. It's what we expect is going to happen. So, Roger, you were saying that the Senate in the last few weeks 
the Republicans were, were, were fighting the, the, the package. The, the that has package. to do with brinkmanship coming into an election. Trump has, Dude. so it's populism on the right or populism on the left. The, the, the party of Reagan is no more. Perhaps the Tea Party is going to re- reignite that, those flames if she loses. If Trump wins, it's four more years. The, the, the reason why the Republicans, and this is my hypothesis, didn't want to pass this is because they expect Trump to lose. And so they didn't want to hand the Democrats with this with this Massive win. I get it. Like, listen, of, of cash I'm not, I'm not it, saying so. that the Republicans are not going to also spend. And it's populism on both sides of the aisle. It, to- it, it, it may be. For- it may be. But there's there's degrees of it. Right. As as you would expect, as you would expect. You will. I don't expect, think so. I, I think, I, I, I think it's different ways to do the it. Same amount of money so, going so, in yeah. one direction or the other. Yeah. OK. Exactly. So what happened? No. Well, hold on a second. You guys are talking about taxes. So the Democrats are going not, to increase taxes. I'm not right? even talking about taxes. Fiscal spending. Yeah. In aggregate, whether you do it, where you do but it. There's ways to spend fiscally and there's and, and the, are you telling me that the Democrats and the Republicans are going to end up spending fiscally in the exact same ways? And they're going to have the exact same impact? Trump is a populist populist the same the right amount, yes. as yes. Yeah. I, I, okay, I would up. expect it would happen. He might not have the Congress on his so side I disagree. to do it. I disagree. I think that the Republicans as a whole will spend less and try to get uh, stimulus in the economy by cutting taxes. And the Democrats will try to redistribute the pie by spending more money and taxing the economy, trying to redistribute the wealth. I like the, the metaphor. The yeah, I like the metaphor of the Republicans as a whole, spelled H O L, and the <laughs> Democrats as a whole, because I agree both of them are a hole in the earth that they just pour money into. Right. And, yeah. And, and it and, just the, and 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 as Kevin describes so perfectly. It is a debit in the government that is an instant credit in the bank accounts of of the private sector. And those with the greatest current credits have a vastly greater share of the new credits. How in any and, we, and at it that, depends on how that's distributed. It's not, way outside, of course it does. It doesn't. We've stepped way outside of our expertise and we've become a political podcast now in the last... <laughs> Finally really? interesting, guys. We're finally yeah. interesting. You guys <laughs> want to talk neither, about... I don't think any of us has taken a political position. I don't think anybody has been like no, anti-Trump or anti-Biden. No, or not whatever. at all. It's just no, it's, it's a discussion of policy and, sure. and social <clears throat> uh, policy, but completely... Uh, apolitical. Apolitical. Yeah, it's it's I, I, interesting, I, though, that, that um, as Kevin pointed out, too, that the idea of MMT... Uh, as applied by one party versus another is is a is a different set of policies. What do you think is going to? Are, are we? Do we think the Republicans they have the same control of the Senate Correct. and the yeah, and Congress? Do you think they may not use as a political tool not approving uh, the debt ceiling to be to be brought up like they have to approve every single year? Do you think they may not use that? And if they do use that, that's going to create uh, less fiscal spending in a way that the Democrats may not. It's like this is there's going to be different things at play based on these two these two governments and who's in. And and I you're going to see that the Democrats are going to try to extend redistribute the pie better than the Republicans. I'm reminded of of our friend Doug, who tells the story about driving through the McDonald's drive through and he orders some some food and he gets to the drive through and realizes all he's got is some change. And he reaches out his hand to the drive through and he and he. And he just dumps a bunch of change into the drive-through lady's hand, and he, you know, to me, it's like, do I jump, cha- dump change out of my left hand, or do I dump change out of my right hand? But it's it ends up being exactly the same change going exactly exactly the same place, 
and this this whole thing is just like some strange theater that uh, in the end uh, ends up in exactly the, the, the same the same place. You know, it's weird because I as a, as a, a social progressive, I absolutely want spending on things like. Um, you know, children from mothers with HIV and children with mothers mm-hmm. with, with hepatitis and all these, these, um, uh, programs that were cut under the, the current administration, it just seems barbaric. And, and I want funding for these. And if it requires deficit spending, fine. But what I, what I want to avoid is a policy that doesn't consider other, social dynamics that are important other than just inflation. Cause I, it feels like the entire MMT conversation is about how much money can we fire hose into the system before we get inflation. And there are other social dynamics that will play out. And your thesis is that this, w- that will, this have, will not alleviate social issues. This will exacerbate it. That's your thesis. It, yeah, it'll alleviate some and exacerbate others. I think. And this is, this, is, well, this is the challenge, right? It, it, can you, so I'll snap my fingers and make you the boss of how it gets spent and, and the boss of when you stop spending in anticipation. Well, keep in mind, after the war, they instituted uh, profit caps at companies, right? So a company was not allowed to earn a profit margin larger than a certain amount and any excess was taxed. And so that was a way to ensure that, that um, the kings of industry were not uh, profiteering on the backs of the war effort, right? right? And so we're fighting a different type of battle. It's a different type of war, but it is a war against poverty, against the pandemic, against you know. A, have a we have we done some around. of that with with some of the spending done to find a COVID vaccine? So the government's participation in putting money towards that and subsequently sort of capping the profit margin on that. Has that sort of happened already a little bit? I don't bit? know. It would surprise me if it did. I, I mean, my recollection is, is, is very light here, but I do recall, you know, sort of um, the U S government sort of giving these companies a fair bit of money to. And it's almost go. like equity capital. Correct. Share, yeah. where, whereas the, the, when, com- when, the country shares in the. Yeah. And, and the companies actually have been put in units where they have to actually work together because it is a shared uh, discovery and it has shared implications across all of um, society. So, and I'm I'm really light on that. I just recall something about about that, and I, it could it could have gone by the wayside, but it would make sense um, from that perspective for a vaccine the, the, so so impactful as a COVID vaccine to take that approach. Absolutely, you know there are no problematically on side. Agreed. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So so Adam, just to what is I, you have you're the world despot now you get to do whatever you want in order to minimize the wealth gap what happens what do you, what policies do you create i i would obviously introduce much more um uh i think plain vanilla what's the right word for it i mean so many of the problems with the tax code um Loopholes. are that many people can avoid they there's so many ways to wiggle out so one of the things i would do is i would make it impossible to for people to wiggle out of paying tax enforceable right? and progressive is that what you're- 100% yes much more progressive much more enforceable um and um you know i i don't know if it is it is, if it's constructive for our um our business for me to go through all of the policy choices that i would introduce. <laughs> yes please Tommy. yeah um, <laughs> so <laughs> So, um, 
you would you would implement this today in a period where we are at the brink of deflation and negative growth shocks where you know people are counting their pennies across the across the board so so tell me what's so bad about deflation for the vast majority of people no jobs uh unemployment uh not being able to eat like well, hold on. The, great the cost depression. of food drops. The cost of education because nobody drops. Has the money. cost of gasoline drops. The cost of your mortgage drops. The cost of your, um, like generally the your entire The income that comes in from your tax burden goes down. I mean, these are what bad. Tax burden? Do, we, these do are, we care about taxes anymore? I thought MMT was about, we don't, we don't really care about taxes. It's, well, you raise taxes to control inflation, which right. is another whole strange exactly, thing yeah. that I'm not. <laughs> I, again, yeah. I got to. It is yeah, a bit mind I, I, I actually buy the mechanics of it 100%. 100% yeah. agree in the mechanics. If everybody understood those mechanics, our entire social fabric would evaporate. <laughs> That's a good statement. You, you, okay. I love that. You base that on that one white paper where there's only one winner. I mean, there's other elements to all of this. It's not true. No, we can totally I talk about that, but that's, that's got nothing to do with this. I don't think that's what he's saying. Yeah. yeah. I didn't so, that. Sorry, I might have missed it. Are you talking, are we talking about the whatever we do in MMT and it ends up, there's no, ends up being one winner and that white paper you constantly. Uh, um, no, no, no. I, I mean that under MMT, taxes are only owed to control inflation. And therefore, if that's true, it's not It's not to balance a budget, right? Keep in mind, the, the people pay taxes because they believe that they are contributing to a social good. They're paying for healthcare. They're paying for, you know, the fact that they don't need to walk down the street and see homeless people um, on the street. They, they pay for their kids to go to school or other people's kids to go to school or whatever. There's some sense of social participation in the tax narrative now. Under MMT, we can print as much money as we want that the, the relative deficits are immaterial. So I'm not actually paying for my for my kids' school or my my neighbor's kids' school or for to support the the minimum income level of elderly parents or um uh, for 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 healthcare for poor children or for for to support children's lunches or whatever. Rather, I am paying to control some ephemeral inflation rate that the government's going to tell me that's going to be hotly contested and that the government themselves can manipulate the definition and measurement of. Like, that's a totally different social commitment than the current commitment for taxes. So why are we paying taxes and how are we going to persuade people that paying taxes is important or virtuous? Well, look, and, and there's a difference between federal taxes and state taxes, right? Because you can't do MMT at a state level. You can't print money. You actually have to balance your We budget. were talking about MMT, which is clearly at a federal level, right? Yeah, you yeah. Okay, so, and so we talk trickle. about well, you you know, might all, the, all, those, all those policies you mentioned have a lot to do with state, state-based state welfare and, and all that. that and that municipal, right? It's how Taleb yeah. says, on a family, on my family nucleus, I'm communists. On my neighborhood, I'm a socialist. And as you scale up, you become a libertarian on a federal level. So, so... Absolutely, there's there, there's no doubt that you, and there's you need no to be centralized. For the feds to come in and bail out, for example, well, I guess, look, municipal it's all, pensions or state. Pensions. It's all human. It's all it's all. Where are the major right? liabilities on state books? Pensions, gents. The the, 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 this the, is the a rapid hole that we could uh, definitely keep going. No <laughs> doubt. Uh, I, I do have a hard stop because I have a plane to catch. I also have to go. All right. Uh, it's been great. <laughs> all right, man. Enjoy COVID flying. Thank That's, you. Uh, Good yeah, luck every, over everyone, there. Everyone wish. Oh, God. I, I don't know. Richard is flying <laughs> into the mall. 
He's flying. It's gonna be fine. N95 masks and some armagnac sure. in my. Yeah, in my uh, yeah, make sure you got your armagnac in there. Your uh, nitric yeah. oxide. Breathe that in. Yeah. Hey guys, who do we have next week? By the way, we have Jardin on. Is it? Is it uh, Kevin? The, the doc, Kevin. So this is going to be uh, fun next week. Yeah. I think too. We're going to be talking about optimal performance. Let's not give it away. Let's not give it away. Well, I, I'm going to give no, him no, a little, no. a little taste, like a little taste. Uh, uh, a chiropractor uh, who's who um, deals with a lot of Marvel uh, Stinger. This is the yeah. Marvel Stinger for those of you that have stayed up until the right. very end after all the political ranting. He's a very uh, successful entrepreneur that that is also a coach and a physical therapist and a chiropractor. Is coaching uh, Bianca. I can't remember her last name. Uh, Andrescu. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I'm gonna miss that one. He's a great guy. He's been both my uh, my physical therapist and life coach and business coach. He's got a lot of interesting life experience that I think everybody would enjoy. Yeah. Yep. So. so also I will, I will give a shameless plug. I know it's at the end people are tailing off, but uh, just remember to uh, subscribe and like and share and get the little bit notification bell. We did this one an hour earlier. So um, I know we probably caught a few people just uh, off guard a little bit, but you know, we have to, we want great guests. Kevin was amazing. And um, so we do have to vary the show a little bit in its time. Uh, but you, you know, the more the more popular you make it, the the better the guests we can have, and the and the more conversations that uh, you can hear. You know, this, these crazy four guys doing uh, with. Uh, and if you don't want to go, people. if you don't want to go the full hour or hour and a half, we've also uh, recently launched the mini riffs channel, which allows us for some short snippets. Yep. Uh, and uh, soon to be uh, rolling out some uh, original content for that channel as well. So uh, stick around. Bite size wisdom. Yeah, that's right. All right, right, guys. This was fun. Yeah, it was certainly that. Cheers. Great. See you guys. Have a great weekend. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at InvestResolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast will be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.